Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's podcast series, COVID-19, What's Happening Now? This podcast aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing how to keep those living with HIV safe amid the threats of COVID-19. Here to cover that are Dr. Jennifer Chang with Kaiser Permanente Southern California, Dr. Rajesh Gandhi of Harvard University, and Dr. Rachel Bender-Ignacio with the University of Washington. Thank you all so much for your participation today. Dr. Chang, I'd like to start with you. Are people with HIV at a greater risk for getting COVID-19? Uh, well, thanks for having me on this podcast. Um, at the at the moment, we really don't know if there is a greater risk of complications from COVID-19 in people living with HIV than in HIV-negative people. And uh, that is definitely a question that needs to be answered. None of the large retrospective cohorts in China or in the American data thus far have parsed out risk factors or clinical outcomes based on HIV status. And so uh, that is definitely something I'm keenly interested in pursuing at my own institution. If I were to make a pure educated guess, I would think that someone living with HIV who's compliant with antiretroviral therapy is not necessarily more at risk for severe complications from COVID-19 than someone of a similar age and sex without HIV. However, I think we really have to consider other comorbidities. And um, in thinking about people living with HIV as a whole in the U.S., more than 50% of everyone living with HIV is 50 years of age or older. Uh, And on top of that, many of our patients suffer from chronic diseases like hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, which are certainly known risk factors for poor outcomes um, based on both the the Chinese and American cohort data. And so I I think what's, what's also unclear to me is whether having a senescent immune system with a history of severe immunodeficiency um, leads to a higher risk for more severe uh, manifestations of of COVID-19. And I'm thinking in particular about patients with um, histories of CD4 inhibitors that were less than 200 in the past. Um, These these are actually the patients I'm most worried about in terms of poor clinical outcomes, um, regardless of what their current CD4 is. Um, so, so I think these, these are some of the questions I'd like to see addressed in my institution. And I know several other institutions are working on this, um, including teams from UW and UCSD uh, within the Center for AIDS Research, the CIFAR network um, of integrated clinical systems. Um, so I know that um, Dr. Bender Inacio, um, who's joining us today, is also really actively involved in researching those questions. Thank you for your insights, Dr. Chang. Dr. Bender Ignacio, I'd like you to field this next question, which is, how has the care and treatment of people with HIV changed and evolved since the pandemic? That's a great question. Um, It is continuing to evolve every day. Um, As with most other medical specialties, we are moving many of our visits to telemedicine. Um, not unique to people caring um, for people living with HIV. Um, Much of our population in our clinics 
um, have additional challenges that make tel telemedicine more difficult. For example, um, many of our patients are living homeless or have limited internet or speak um, languages other than English. Um, and so just sort of those additional barriers, um, having to have a smartphone or other device um, to do video um, can make it additionally challenging. Again, that's not unique to, um, to an HIV practice. Um, and additionally, as many people know, uh, our clinics generally provide wraparound services that are more comprehensive than uh, many other primary care clinics. And much of that is due in part to Ryan White funding. Uh, and um, we've been working very closely, um, HIVMA and IDSA have been working closely with um, Ryan White and HRSA, um, and uh, they have just released, as of yesterday, I believe, the CARES Act, which is a plan to step up funding to bolster HIV clinics during this time. And that should really be um, a boon to both providers and patients in terms of helping roll out um, COVID testing at these clinics and provide other supports for people who could be disproportionately um, affected by social distancing measures, including helping people with transportation and home delivered meals and helping our clinics ramp up with telemedicine. Additionally, um, many insurance providers are now allowing people to have 90-day prescriptions in order to come to clinic less often or to go to the pharmacy less often. And we've been working hard as well um, to um, help uh, make this possible, moving um, our prescription pickups to mail order. And many of the ADAP programs or the um, HIV drug assistance programs are also working to extend the duration of prescriptions that are available. And then lastly, and I'll refer to the guidance that HIVMA and IDSA issued about caring for people with HIV um, during the COVID crisis. Um, we, as well as AIDS Info, are recommending that patients that are uh, clinically stable and have good adherence to antiretrovirals uh, be allowed to push back their safety labs and viral load monitoring, potentially defer having labs for the next check or next few checks as long as they're stable and uh, continue to have all of their visits via telemedicine or telephone in order to both not bring patients into clinics um, and, and laboratories and also offload the virology laboratories so that they can continue to work on, uh, on testing for COVID. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Bender Ignacio. Dr. Gandhi, moving on now to you. Are any changes in antiretroviral treatments recommended for people with HIV at this time? Uh, thanks for that question. So the short answer to that question is no, there are no changes in antiretroviral treatment recommended for people with HIV. But I think it's really important to know why that's the recommendation, both of the HIV Medicine Association, as well as the Department of Health and Human Services um, guidelines panel. So some HIV medicines, in particular, a drug called lopinavir ritonavir, which is used um, in the past for treatment of HIV, uh, have uh, shown some evidence in what we call preclinical models of, of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 infection as having activity. So preclinical, I mean uh, in vitro or test tube studies and animal studies. And for that reason, when um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 um, became um, uh, epidemic in China, a number of groups uh, started looking at whether lupinavir ritonavir, which has some activity against um, a related coronavirus is whether it might work against SARS-CoV-2. 
Um, the uh, data so far does not support any effect of lopinavir ritonavir against, um, as uh, an effective treatment against COVID-19. There was a randomized trial that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently uh, in about 200 individuals with COVID-19. These are people without HIV. And in that study, there was really no um, appreciable uh, antiviral effect of the lopinavir ritonavir, uh, nor was there uh, an effect on clinical outcomes. Um, other protease inhibitors um, uh, also have been considered, but uh, similarly, there's no evidence that other protease inhibitors um, have a, a beneficial effect in terms of treating COVID-19. Uh, and then finally, people have wondered, uh, because a, a drug being used for COVID-19 called remdesivir, which is a, um, a nucleoside analog, people have wondered whether HIV nucleoside analogs like um, tenofovir or emtricitabine, whether they might have uh, preventive or therapeutic effects against um, SARS-CoV-2, but finally, there's no evidence for, for that either. So the really important um, answer to this question is, um, at this point in time, we have no indication that any antiretroviral uh, medication either prevents COVID-19 or treats COVID-19. And for that reason, it's really important to communicate um, uh, to people living with HIV that they should really not be changing their antiretroviral uh, regimen with a expectation that that would either prevent or treat COVID-19. And this is something that I've, I've been asked uh, several times by, by my own patients, and, and that's the answer that I've given is to stay on their current regimen. Thank you, Dr. Gandhi. Dr. Chang, I'd like to come back to you now. How are the COVID-19 treatment protocols different for people with HIV? The current pharmacological treatment protocols are not based on high quality data at this point. And that is the case for everyone, regardless of HIV status. At my own institution, our diagnostic protocols do prioritize people living with HIV for testing, um, but uh, we do not have different treatment protocols for people depending on their HIV status, nor should we, um, given that antiretroviral therapy and modern treatments for HIV allow for normal um, life expectancy. Thank you for that perspective, Dr. Chang. Dr. Bender Ignacio, what do clinicians without HIV expertise need to know about treating COVID-19 in patients with HIV? So I, I want to start by reiterating the last thing that Dr. Chang said, which is that most people living with HIV have the same life expectancy as people without HIV. So as we're getting to critical illness and places where um, people need to make medical decision-making around potentially life-saving interventions, such as use of a ventilator or experimental therapies. We are really encouraging clinicians to consider people for these interventions, regardless of their HIV status. This also extends to enrollment in clinical trials. We are strongly encouraging, and there's been a, an nationwide move over the last several years to strongly encourage that people living with HIV not be excluded from clinical trials. And so we strongly suggest that uh, HIV status alone not be a consideration as to whether or not any particular intervention be offered or uh, enrollment in a clinical trial be offered. That said, there, of course, are particular individual factors such as comorbidities or protect, potential medical in, uh, medicine interactions, drug-drug interactions, or immunologic factors that may take um, precedence in particular individuals. But as a whole, um, this is our main emphasis. 
Nextly, if patients are seen in an urgent care or emergency setting, we're requesting to please be kind and refill uh, antiretroviral therapy as it's written previously, even if that might be something that um, that provider might not do in an urgent basis. Again, that just allows patients to have to interact with the healthcare system one last time and be able to stay home and stay safe. Uh, and lastly, uh, when patients living with HIV are admitted to the hospital, one of the most important things in assuring good health care for our patients living with HIV is to try not to interrupt their antiretroviral therapy. So please continue this medication as written. And if you have any concerns or um, discomfort with treating HIV, most hospitals have an HIV or ID specialist who can help make these decisions with you. And if not, um, there are several hotlines available, including one at UCSF, um, which is posted on the IDSA webpage that can help field calls um, if, if uh, locally there are not experts available to, um, to assist. And then lastly, for persons coming into the hospital who are not yet on antiretroviral therapy or who've never been on antiretroviral therapy or have been off for a long time, the decision to initiate antiretroviral therapy can always be a little bit complicated when someone has a pulmonary infection. And so um, consulting with an HIV or ID specialist about the right time to initiate H uh, ART during that hospitalization um, could be very helpful. In general, we recommend that most people leave the hospital with antiretroviral therapy, barring a, a significant reason against um, initiating it. But the exact time at which it's appropriate to start in order to prevent drug-drug interactions or immunologic complications should be discussed with someone who is comfortable with beginning ART in, in, in sick hospitalized patients. Excellent information there, Dr. Bender-Ignacio. Thank you for that. Dr. Gandhi, Dr. Bender-Ignacio touched on this in her last answer. Do you recommend enrolling people with HIV in clinical trials for COVID-19? I do, and I'll, 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 I'll tell you why. The, um, I think it's fair to say um, at this point, we really don't know what works for treatment of COVID-19. Um, the Infectious Disease Society of America um, uh, reviewed all of the evidence for different treatments for COVID-19, and, and last week, uh, issued their guidelines, which really was a call um, to action when it comes to studying how to best treat COVID-19, because um, the data right now for the things that are being considered is just insufficient to conclude that any particular therapy works, and, and that's really why there's no FDA-approved drugs for COVID-19. Therefore, it's um, incumbent on us to really enroll as many people as we can um, uh, into clinical trials so we can get an answer to this critical question and that includes people uh, with HIV. Um, we know that um, people with HIV in the past have blazed uh, the way in terms of um, um, uh, uh, contributing to clinical trials that, that made possible the advent of, of current antiretroviral therapy along with their clinicians and clinical scientists. And I think similarly, we need that same kind of uh, information so we can understand how to treat COVID-19. Um, I will say that some of the trials that are now being launched are explicitly including people with HIV. Um, an example is an AIDS clinical trials group study um, that is not just for people with HIV, but will include people with HIV, and that's to study what is the best um, treatment for outpatients uh, with COVID-19. So I, I recommend all my um, patients with COVID-19 enroll in trials, and I uh, strongly recommend that trials allow people with HIV uh, to be included so we can get these answers 
uh, that we so desperately need. I appreciate that answer, Dr. Gandhi. Dr. Chang, have you made any changes to how you are managing patients who are HIV negative and taking PrEP to prevent HIV? I have not made any specific changes to people taking PrEP um, other than to relax the guidelines a little bit more on lab monitoring. So um, we are requiring labs every four months rather than every three months now. And um, this actually preceded COVID. Our clinic um, requires face-to-face visits only once a year. And then we, we, we request a telephone or video visit at the six-month mark um, at, since the last face-to-face visit. So we've been doing that now for two years, and it's quite successful. Um, and we've moved the entire um, uh, face-to-face visits uh, and, and um, transferred it all to telehealth. So uh, video visits or, or telephone visits at this point. At this time, I'd like to open the floor to the panel for any last words. Now that we know and we've known for some time that people with HIV are eminently treatable, this is a disease that um, uh, uh, if you, uh, when treated gives a normal lifespan, uh, we really should be um, not making medical decisions or triage decisions based on HIV status. And that's a really important message to get out. Um, to um, all clinicians around the country. And so it just shows you how far we've come with HIV. And it's in this new pandemic, it's a a point to really uh, hone in on. And um, and then all the other things that were mentioned in terms of how we treat our people with HIV, um, I think will perhaps transform our thinking even in the future. The last thing I do wanna say that that we haven't brought up yet, but I I do wanna um, bring up now, the United States is on a, um, a mission, as it should be, to end the HIV epidemic. And one um, critical thing that we um, not lose sight of is the importance of um, diagnosing and treating and engaging and retaining people with HIV in care. Um, this is a um, um, uh, once in a century, I think, stress on the uh, healthcare system. And we can't let the most vulnerable people in our society um, be, bear the brunt uh, of this um, by um, not uh, continue our efforts to end the HIV epidemic. It's mid-April now, and I have a call list of patients who are sick at home with influenza-like illnesses who are what would be considered mildly ill and not sick enough to be in the hospital. And so, as you can imagine, there's a lot of anxiety with this for both the patients and uh, for healthcare providers. And I will say that um, a lot of what I try to think about is that the vast majority of people uh, with COVID-19 do not necessarily need hospitalization. And there are going to be a lot of survivors from this disease. And we don't yet know what the long-term sequelae are. Uh, although we're starting to see reports of, you know, renal manifestations and sort of more chronic disease manifestations with COVID-19. But I think in terms of just a small ray of hope, I do think that uh, we, we have to remember that a lot of people are going to survive this. And if we have anything to learn from the HIV AIDS pandemic, um, it's it's really Uh, understanding what survivorship means and how to care for people 
um, in the long term. And I think we as clinicians and society as a whole need to think about those, those issues as well. A great last point. Thank you for that. At this time, we'd like to thank our very knowledgeable panel, Drs. Jennifer Chang, Rajesh Gandhi, and Rachel Bender-Ignacio. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic.